In the finale of season one of Revide Radio, I wanted to go back to one of my favorites. He's the guy we opened season one with, and I think he's the perfect person to wrap the season with. He's one of my absolute favorites. God's hitchhiker evangelist, Rolf Barnard. I'm Elise, and you're listening to Revide Radio. In our first episode, we did a sermon by Rolf Barnard called The God of the Bible Kills People. It's an excellent sermon that sticks with you, and it was actually a major inspiration for this podcast. So I encourage you to check it out if you haven't already, and I'll link it in the description as well. Barnard is kind of what I imagine an Old Testament prophet would have sounded like. In this sermon in particular, you can hear how his heart breaks for those who don't know the Lord. His ministry began in a small town called Borger, Texas. A lot of his sermon focuses on the people and things he experienced while he was there. It was a fundamentally transformative time in his life, and for good reason, as you'll soon hear. In this particular episode, I want to tell you about Rolf Barnard's conversion and surrendering to the Lord. It's a really interesting story. Before he was born, his parents dedicated him to the Lord for ministry. And when he was 11, he went forward at a missionary meeting. He felt that God wanted him to be a preacher, but he rebelled against that idea. He did not want to be a preacher. And he was so anguished and tormented day and night for years, feeling God's call to ministry, but he rejected it time and time again. And at 15, he goes away to college and decides that in order to avoid God, he would become an atheist, and he became militantly anti-God. Once a week, he would lead a group of a few hundred to mock God, the Bible, and Christians. I guess it was kind of an atheist club of some kind, but it's not entirely clear. Kind of like an anti-youth group, maybe? But what's really interesting about that is he would curse and rail against God every night, but he couldn't sleep at night unless he prayed. And he told God every night, if you don't kill me tonight, I'll surrender to you tomorrow. After graduation, he moves to the Texas Panhandle, and in Texas at the time, you had to be a member of your local church in order to be a school teacher. And so he joins a local church, and very soon afterwards, he's asked to lead this men's Bible class. And after he's been there for a while, the church pastor resigns, and his torment starts up anew, and he knew that God wanted him to preach. So one Sunday, he goes home, and he enters the bathroom and locked the door. And there, as he said later, the battle was fought out, and God won. So he goes to the superintendent's house. I assume it was a church-school kind of combination. And he wakes him up where he'd been sleeping on the porch before dinner. And he says, Brother Mills, I've come to tell you, the Lord has saved me. I want to preach next Sunday. And you'd be thinking like, oh my goodness, you weren't saved this whole time. This is crazy. But instead he says, well, it's about time. Which of course shocked Barnard because he's like, what do you mean? Like, this is not news to you? And so the superintendent says, things have been going on. A couple of letters came to the Texas Panhandle post office. One of them was addressed to the superintendent of the Sunday school of the First Baptist Church. The other was addressed to the pastor. They were identical letters. Some old lady from Abilene, Texas said, My boy is coming to your town to teach school. He's called to be a preacher. He's not even saved. He's in an awful mess. She said, If you could find it in your heart, build a fire under him. Don't let him have a moment's peace. And the superintendent said, Boy, we've been doing it. We knew you weren't saved, but we elected you to teach a men's Bible class. We've been meeting once a week and asking, Lord, make the fire a little hotter. And we've been waiting. He does a complete 180, and now all the energy he spent opposing God, he takes it to preaching on beer kegs in the middle of a boom town.
the twelfth chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes, beginning with the first verse. Remember now thy Creator in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. While the sun or the light or the moon or the stars be not darkened, nor the clouds return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house shall tremble, and the strong men shall bow themselves, and the grinders cease because they are few, and those that look out of the windows be darkened, and the doors shall be shut in the streets, when the sound of the grinding is low, and he shall rise up at the voice of the bird, and all the daughters of music shall be brought low. Also when they shall be afraid of that which is high, and fear shall be in the way, and the almond tree shall flourish, grasshopper shall be a burden, and desire shall fail. All natures in a low key were reading about a funeral procession. They're taking the body of a man who's already in the hands of God. They're taking his body down the street. All the music is in a minor key. Fear is everywhere. Because man goeth to his long home and the mourners go about the streets. Forever the silver cord be loosed, or the golden bowl be broken, or the pitcher be broken at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return unto God who gave it. Here's the Bible description of a funeral procession. I want to speak to you this last message on the subject when I found out people die. A little while after I was saved, I went back to school to do some postgraduate work. I'd been graduated from college. And in a little while, I was asked by the association in the panhandle of Texas if I would go to Borger, Texas, and build a church. I was single and just recently saved. And the association had gone out to that place, which at that time was the fastest growing, biggest oil town in the world. Six months before, been nothing but a man ranch. They discovered oil. And within six months, 50,000 people lived in that boom town. There were 176 saloons, 176 gaming houses, and 176 houses of ill fame in the city. They were all together. One building, 
That is, each three of them. In the front would be the liquor store. In the back, the middle room, the gaming room. And the room behind the houses of ill fame. There was not a preacher in the oil town. And no church. I borrowed five dollars from a Baptist deacon and filled my tin lizard Ford up with gasoline and went to that wicked city to plant a testimony for Christ. We had a lot, but we had no building. And so I conceived the idea of raising enough money to start. I went the first, and after I'd been in the city two, three days, I stayed with the deacon who fed me and slept me, and I found an old building that had already been outgrown as a dance hall, and I bought it on credit, and then I went to a moving man, and I contracted to have him move the old building onto the church lots, and I told him I'd have the money for him when he set the building down. And then, being no respect of persons, not knowing but one professing Christian in the entire 50,000 group of people, and not knowing as much as I know now, I decided that I would raise the money. So I started at one end of the street. It's two miles long. All the buildings had false fronts on either side. And that was the only street in the city, two miles long. At that time, the street wasn't paved. It was a wicked oil town. Every other street was a row of oil derricks in the little town site. 50,000 people trying to make some money. Every kind of crook and everything else there. A lot of church members that had left their religion at home and come to the oil town to recoup their losses. Didn't know how to raise money, so I thought I'd just ask everybody. So I started at one end of the street, had me a big hat, and I went in every place of building, in that every kind of business, Jew joints, liquor stores, gaming houses, everybody, picture shows, grocery stores, dry goods stores, everybody. And I'd just walk in the place of business and tell them I was preaching. I'd been sent there to build a church, and I wanted them to give me some money. Well, money was free. And uh, I raised $26,000 in two days. I didn't need but about 1000 to get started, but I didn't tell them that. And, boy, we had lots of money. Well, sir, I had already made... One, one, one side of the street, two miles long, and I was coming back on the other. I was doing good. And a dear old brother by the name of Stanley, there was a lawyer in that town he heard about me. Later became my very fast and warm and good spiritual advice, white-headed old lawyer, honest Christian gentleman. He heard about what the young preacher was doing. And finally he waylaid me that I was coming out of a Jew's jewelry store. And he got acquainted with me, and he bawled me out something terrible. Well, it's all right. He had gray hair, and I took it. He said, son, you just played Whaley. said, what you're doing is awful, awful, awful. I said, what am I doing? He said, I'm getting the money. I'm going to build a church. 
He said, you ought not to use the devil's money to build the Lord's church. And I said, oh, he said, no, sir. He said, that's, that's bad. That's bad. And he said, uh, he said, that's awful. That's all. Well, so I told him, I thanked him from the bottom of my heart and I repented and I was awful sorry that I'd committed that awful sin, but I kept the money because the dear brother was wrong. I don't believe in using the devil's money to prosecute the Lord's work. And if I ever get a hold of a dime that belongs to the devil, I'm going to look him up and give it to him. But the scriptures say the money belongs to God. The scriptures say the cattle on a thousand hills belong to him. The scriptures say silver and gold are his. I don't fall for that old stuff about the devil having any money. He doesn't control a dime he hadn't swiped from Almighty God. Well, I kept the money, and I got acquainted with people. And by the time I'd made the rounds, everybody in town knew there's a fool boy that town, Baptist preacher, going to build a church. And they all thought maybe if they gave me twenty or ten dollar bill, they wouldn't burn quite so bad in hell. And all of them kicked in: Jew, Gentile, bootlegger, mayor, chief police, sheriff, and everybody. They gave me some money. But by the time I got into the biggest establishment on the second, coming back to the other side of the street, I found I was. I went into Mr. A. P. Borger. He is the man who founded the town, and he is the biggest crook in the town and had the biggest house of ill fame and the biggest bootlegging joint and the biggest gaming house and had a finger in the pie and all the rest of them. And they were waiting for me. They had spies out and watched my progress. And when I came into their place of business, they'd arranged a little party for the preacher. And I went, went in and started my speech. And they listened to me. And they said, Preacher, you've come to one place where we don't put up till you do. Said, you'll have to give us a little sample of your preaching before we give you any money. Well, that is right down my alley. And they rolled out a big beer keg, and they took me and stood me up on the beer keg. And then they had a photographer there and two deputy sheriffs. They published it all over Texas and the Southwest about how the preacher with the Bible and the sheriff, the sheriff with the six-shooters trying to tame the wicked city. And then they asked me to preach, and I did. And I turned to the book of Ecclesiastes and read to them the text that I've read to you tonight. Then shall the body return to the dust from whence it came. And the spirit, that part of man that'll never die, that part of man that even God can't burn up, the spirit will go back into the hands of God who gave it. And I speak spoke to them about dying and meeting God. And they listened to me. And seven men made profession of faith there in that saloon. The tables were turned on. They became the seven deacons of the First Baptist Church of Borger. They became the charter members of that church. That's where the church started. And I, I preached for 26 months in that wicked city. And I found out some things in that city. For the 16 months that I was there by myself as a preacher... For after 16 months, the Methodists sent a young fellow in. But for 16 months, 
I had a congregation of 50,000 people. I had to go preach to them. They didn't come to hear me. But I preached in every dance hall. I preached in every house of ill fame. I preached in every gaming house. I preached in every movie house. I preached on the street corners. I preached everywhere. And I went to them. I baptized with these hands 2,167 people in 26 months. I didn't have any of them see, but I, I made a little dip into that wicked city. And I didn't do it, my friends, by building a building and expecting the lost to come to him and preach. I wish that God, in his providence, would burn down every church building in America. And we're so poor, we couldn't build anymore. And we'd quit having services and letting the world go to hell. And we'd go down to Sister Jones' house and get in tune with God or hold a little meeting somewhere out behind someplace. And then we'd go out to witness and take the gospel like Jesus told us to, to men and women who are lost. I didn't have any deacons except deacons who were personal soul winners. And we don't need any now, my brethren. I didn't have any Sunday school teachers except people who were skilled in dealing with the souls of men. We were handpicked. And my people, uh, we, 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 we didn't encourage them to come to the service on Sunday night unless they went down and got some poor old law sinner and manhandled him and almost compelled him to come. We had a great time. I learned. I learned some things in that experience. I learned, first of all, that you can't clean up this old world. I don't have any perfume in my pockets. I'm not around trying to make a world that's dead and trespasses and sins smell better. I haven't got time to try to drive the liquor business out. I haven't got time to try to close up the movies or the dance halls. I found out in that first experience that you can't clean up this old sinful world. The only lasting thing that can be done by God's people now is to keep straight to the last. And when you get a sinner cleaned up, that's the business God Almighty is engaged in now. I got the editor of the paper and uh, I got some men who loved the Lord together, and we formed committees, and, and we gained evidence. And I got on a train, went to Austin, Texas, and, and tumbled on the desk of the governor a suitcase full of certified, uh, uh, notarized evidence. And he looked it over, and pushed a button, and, and the captain of the Texas Rangers came in. And before I got back to my city, the Rangers were there. And martial law was declared, and they let me have the honor of sitting, setting the match when over 1,200 slot machines were chopped into pieces and burned up. And they let me lead the procession with the mayors who took over 1,300 poor fallen women and marched them outside the city limits and told them not to come back. They let me put the first padlock on the first of the 176 houses of ill fame and gaming houses and bootlegging joints and the padlocked them. And we cleaned the town as clean as a hound tooth and it stayed that way almost two weeks. What happened was those women went to other towns and they came there. And we closed up this joint and they opened up next door. And I found out we did that three times while I was pastor. In 26 months, the district attorney was killed. We had martial law for six months. I never preached except the Texas Ranger sat there and a ranger there. One of them slept with me in my bedroom. I went with to my meals in the company of a ranger. 
ranger. I never got outside uh, anywhere without a ranger. If I had, I'd have been shot down three times. The building I was in was bombed, and I escaped every time. And it was a sight to see the boy preacher preaching and two Texas rangers with their guns sitting there. It was a sight to see me walk the streets and go about my ministry one to two Texas Rangers with me, but I had to do it in order to keep from being killed. And we closed up the town, and we cleaned it up, but it didn't stay clean. And from that day till this, I've let other people get rich trying to reform a dead world, for people will pay you well if you'll quit preaching the gospel of regeneration and try to clean up this whole wicked world. I learned another thing while I was there. I never had faced it before. And I'm going to talk to you a little while tonight on something many of you have never seen. I learned, under God, I learned that men and women die. I learned that I had it burned into my soul. I had it burned into my soul, so I've never been able to get over it. I found out that people die. I heard about it. I preached a lot of funerals. I fitted the bedside of some, but I never had it burned into my soul. Let men die until that experience. For for 26 months, I averaged preaching three funerals a day. For 26 long months, the first 26 months of my ministry. Some days I preached as high as seven different funerals a day. And for 26 months I averaged preaching three funerals a day. About all I did was hold the hands of people as they died, begging me to keep them out of hell. And then going and saying a few words in this funeral parlor over the dead carcass of somebody and down to the next one. And sometimes in the church I watched men die. I saw men die. 50,000 people in that wicked oil town. The underworld characters of America in and out. Dance halls, houses of ill fame, liquor flowing like water. And people getting killed. People dying of what they call gas pneumonia. People getting shot in the dance halls and in the gaming halls and on the streets. And just one preacher to say their words at their funerals. Many of them, the bodies shipped away and I didn't preach the funerals. But for 26 months I lived in the presence of death. For 26 months I had no time for anything much except going to the county home and to the hospital, down to the dance hall, and over here. For when people got killed, they sent for the preacher. And for people that, when they were dying, they sent for the preacher. Nobody knew my name. They called me the preacher. A house of ill fame girl, when she'd be told she was dying, she'd say, send for the preacher. I sat at the bedside of many poor women as they died and tried to say a word. I watched them. I watched strong men eaten up with gas pneumonia until they were nothing but skin and bones. I've had them die, begging me to keep them out of hell. You can't preach three funerals a day for 26 months when you're as young as I am. You can't see people die in jail. You can't see people die in hospitals. You can't see people die in the county home. You can't see people die as the blood springs out of them as they've been in the house of ill fame and hear her screaming as she goes out to meet God without having something take place. And I learned, ladies and gentlemen, what I've never tried to forget, that men die. And I learned they're afraid to die without God. I don't care how smart a fellow is and how he brags. 
I got some inside information. I know that when people come to die, and when the dew of death is on their brow, and the rattle of death's in their throat, when that dark angel hovers near, I know that men and women are afraid to die, are afraid to die, afraid to die. Oh, I've had so many people die begging me not to let them go to hell. Begging me not to let them go to hell. Not to. I still wake up in the night many years after and see the faces of people in that wicked city as I sat about the bedside and as they died begging me not to let them go to hell. Do you wonder when the hitchhike evangelist who dips in to be helpful if he can to a godly preacher and his people for a little while. And he comes to say his last word. Maybe. But we know not tomorrow. To face people for the last time. For this congregation will never be together like it is now. Oh, I look in your faces. And I see written on your foreheads. You got to die. You're going to die. You're going to die. And when you die, your alibis are no good. When you die, your profession is no good. When you die, nothing is any good except the presence of the living Christ who's promised his people that even in the article of death, they'll not have to cross Jordan alone and who's told us that he'll never leave us He'll never, 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 the Hebrew Greek says, he'll never, 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 it's repeated four times in the Greek, leave us, not forsake us. I've been at the bedside of people as they died, praising God. One of the greatest evils of this modern hour is the use of dope when people die. Doctors do it to ease the pain, and they mean well by it. But I say to you tonight, if we'd throw our dope away, as men die in your hospitals without the influence of dope, you people couldn't sleep at night as you hear the screams of men and women dying afraid to meet God. Afraid to meet God. Nobody giving me dope when it comes my time. Men are afraid of the judgment. My God, young man, while it is called today and your wits are about you, and the opportunity is yours, and your mind is clear, and your heart is not thrusted by sin, think upon it. Make preparation while you can against the day when you're going to die. When you're going to die. I've had nurses, listen, I've had nurses take a pair of pliers and break a man's fingers who had held on to my hand while he died. And rigorous mortgage set it in right quick and I couldn't get my hand out of his hand. I've had to have nurses come and take prize and break a man's dead fingers so I could get this hand out. 
and those men holding on to me. I look in the face of the few of death on them and hear the awful rattle in their throat. And the last words I get, I've seen men die. I've seen men die. Ladies and gentlemen, there's a red letter day written down in God Almighty's appointment markets today. You're going to die. You're going to die. I saw a cartoon of a businessman early Monday morning behind locked doors. He'd been out on his usual weekend spring, and he's up at work trying to get things in shape for the week's business. And he'd given orders that nobody disturbed him. He's in his office with the door locked, and a black-shrouded individual called Death came through the locked door with every knock and touched the man on his shoulder and said, I've come for you. The man was busy. He didn't even look around. And he said, go away. I can't be disturbed. I'm very busy. But death tapped him on the shoulder again and said, I've come for you. And the man still didn't look up and said, go away. I can't be disturbed. I'm busy. But death tapped him on the shoulder again and said, I've come for you. And the man looked up and said, who are you? And he said, I'm death. I'm not ready to die, but I've come for you. I can't afford to die now, but I've come for you. And the cartoon had death grabbed the man by his collar and dragged him through the locked door out yonder into the hands of God who gave him his spirit as a red letter day written down on the God in his appointment book when you too will leave this body and go in your spirit into the hands of God who gave it. And if before that time comes, you've not been brought to godly repentance about your sins and living active faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, first death, the physical death, leads to the second death, that awful truth that's so plainly taught in the word of the living God. I remember Dixie. Dixie was the queen of the dance hall girls. She's 26 years old. She's been married seven times. And I had taught, thought, tried to witness to her, but I never succeeded in getting anywhere with her much. She was yet not a victim of her sin. She was beautiful and much sought after. And uh, she had no time. I talked to her many times, many times. And one night she was dancing with a man in a dance hall. And another fellow came and tried to take her away. And they had a scuffle and then a fuss and then a gunshot. And uh, the shot that is meant for the other man lodged in the breast of Dixie. They took her into a room adjoining the dance hall. They called a doctor. And the doctor told her she hadn't but about an hour to live. And they said, she said, somebody go get the preacher. And they came and got me. And I went through the dance hall into that room. Nobody there now but a nurse. The doctor's gone. Dixie's lying on the bed, beautiful, even in the article of death. I sat down on her bed and I said, Dixie, this is the preacher. You sent for me. What do you want? She said, preacher. I sent for you to pray for me. I said, too late to pray now, Dixie. Too late to pray.
pray now. I can't pray anybody into the kingdom of God. This business of getting into the kingdom of God is in language like this, strive to enter in. Oh, mama can't get in the kingdom for you. Somebody else can't get in the gate for you. And I said, Dixie, too late to pray. She said, preacher, I'm dying. I said, that's what the doctor told me, Dixie. And he said, you don't have very long to live. And then she began to scream. She said, preacher, don't want to die. I said, no, but you're going to die, Dixie. She said, preacher, I'm afraid to die. But I said, you got to die, Dixie. She said, preacher, if I die, I'll go to hell. I said, that's right, Dixie. That's right. And she said, preacher, is there any hope for me? I said, yes, Dixie. She said, tell me what it is. I preached to her under the gospel that demands repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pressed the issue upon her. And when she had it before her, I don't know how she had strength enough to do it, but she turned over in the bed. And with her back toward me, she just sobbed. Her body just racked with dry sobs. And then after a while, in what proved to be her last strength, she turned back and faced me. And she said, Preacher, there's no use for me to kid you or myself or God either one. She said, If God had raised me up from this bed right now, I'd go back to the same life. I'm living now. And those were the last words she ever said. She died. She died. Died unrepentant. Died. Died. They took her body out, covered it up under the ground. Five billionth of a second after she said, if God raised me up from this bed, I'd go back to the same kind of life. Those are the last words she ever said. And the next thing she knew, she was out in the hands of Almighty God who warns men of two deaths. Born once, die twice. This old body dies. And then the spirit dies. It's the second death. Revelation 2.11 Let him that hath ears to hear hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh he shall not be hurt of the second. Death and hell, says the book of Revelation, were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. I've tried to find out from the word of God what the scripture has to say about this death of the soul. This death of the spirit. Men are not afraid to die physically, but they're afraid of what's out on the other side of this life. And the Bible says, for God's people, it's eternal life. And the same Bible says for the others, it's the second death. The death that'll hurt. The death that described in the Bible in three different ways. Second death in the Bible is called eternal banishment from Almighty God. We are fond of saying now, and there's some truth in it that men need God. And yet that's not all the truth. For everybody that hears me tonight has God. You have his long suffering. You have his mercy. You have his grace. You have his loving kindness. You love to have his patience. You have his providence. You have all oh, so many things. You're not without God. 
more pity. No more mercy. No more patience. No more long-suffering. God pity us. It's awful to think that our loved ones, our next-door neighbors, maybe you yourself are headed straight toward this old body decaying and dying. And then, having gone to go, that awful eternal banishment forever and ever and ever from God, which is called the second death. To you who are troubled, Paul says, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven in flaming fire with his angels of fire taking vengeance on them that know not God. Now obey not his gospel who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Forever separated, forever banished from God. That tremendous statement of bloodstained Jesus, Matthew 25, 41. Then shall he say unto them, Go away from me, depart from me. He cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Oh, my soul. If the Lord Jesus going to tell people to do that, eternal banishment from him, eternal banishment. That's what awaits men and women. Our chunks, the other side of this life, this generation says, don't want to hear it. Modern day preachers said, don't want to hear it. They say it must have scared people. My God, I want you to be afraid of dying and being eternally banished from the very presence of a long-suffering God who in this life extends mercy, but in that life says, get away from it, depart from it, you curse it into everlasting fire. The second death is described in the word of God as eternal death. Eternal death. Eternal death. Dying and yet never dying. A state of eternal death. In the ninth chapter of the gospel of Mark, we have this expression. For everyone shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. Everyone shall be salted with fire. Everyone shall be preserved with fire. The second death is dying and never die. It's death but never die. It's not end of existence. It's eternal die. It's eternal die. My daddy died for nine months. He lay on his deathbed nine months and died. His pulse stopped many a time. His heart stopped beating. People stood by his bedside for nine months with alcohol and things. And when his pulse would start beating, they'd chafe him and rub him and it'd start back. For nine months, he begged to die. He suffered excruciating pain. He wanted to die. He is dying, but he couldn't die. The second death is described in the word of God is dying and yet you never die salted with fire preserved with fire awful that's the second death the second death is described in the Bible as being cast into the lake of fire whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast. They won't want to go. 
Was cash, they won't want to go. Was cash, they'll not go willing. Was cast, it'll take a power stronger than they. Was cast into the lake of fire, which burneth with fire and brimstone. This is the second death. My God, how thankful I am the Bible rings so true. And it warns of the terrible fate of dying the second death. I'm glad God Almighty pictures it as bad as it is. Don't go there, my friend. Don't go on until it's not left up to you. You're in the hands of the decider of your destiny. And he's cast you unwilling. Maybe you'll scream. This shall be wailing, gnashing of teeth as men and women were cast into the lake of fire. I held a meeting in Columbus, Ohio, years ago. And one night I preached from that text in Revelation. And after the service, a deacon came to me and said, Go home with me for a little coffee and cake. He said, I won't tell you an experience. He said, Your sermon tonight remind me of it so vividly. And so around this table for a little fellowship, he told me this experience. He was a guard and had been for many years in death row in the Ohio State Penitentiary. It is his business eight hours a day, five days a week, to stand guard over men and women who were in those little cells waiting the hour when they'd walk out of that cell and down that narrow road, that door down there, and sit down in the chair and they burned alive. He said, I want to tell you about Mrs. Gray's shoes. I'd, I'd read the paper about it. Mrs. Schultz had been arrested and accused of murdering several men for their insurance. At any rate, she was tried and found guilty and sentenced to be electrocuted. And I remember reading about her electrocution. And I remember about all the fuss that went out over it and all of the efforts to get her sentence commuted, but it didn't. And this man said, I was a guard there all the days that her appeals and the petitions and all said she was the foulest mouth person that I've ever heard in all of my life. Said I've, I've seen some pretty wicked people and heard them as they spent their last days and hours in the death cell. They said this woman, she used such filthy language, such terrible language, cussing God and everybody she could think of. She cursed the mother that bore her. She cursed God. She cussed everybody. Said so she'd sit in the cell and just curse and, and, and throw out obscene words. Said it's off. She said it's so bad that sometimes the hardened criminals in death row would have us bring cotton and they'd stuff their ears. Her language is so vile and filthy that they couldn't even stand it. He said I was one of the guards that stood by the cell and she the warden came to her and told her that her last appeal had failed and told her that all hope that she should be saved from the chair was gone. He said when he did it, he said her cursing was worse than ever before. He said I was one of the two guards that went and unlocked her cell door when the time came and said I took her by one arm, the other guard took her by the other, Marched her out of her cell, 
started down the little narrow walk, said we weren't watching too closely, and said with superhuman strength she knocked us both down, ran back in her cell, closed the door, and said she fell down on her knees over in the corner and began to cry. Said she whimpered like a little broken-hearted girl. Said we had to go back and get her. And he said she just, she just cried so that it, it just, it, it just awful. He said I never heard anything just pitiful. And said, we said we got to go. And said I took a hold of an arm and my pal took a hold of another. And said we got her to her feet. And said she fought us like a tiger. She bit. She snarled. She kicked. And said we had to get two other men. And said we had four big guards. I held one arm. Another man another arm. Another fella took a leg. Another fella took a leg. And we carried out her sail. Down that narrow stretch. And said as we carried her. She fought and screamed and cursed, and it took all our strength to hold her, and said we carried her that way through that little door. Said we held her, sat her down in that chair, and the straps were adjusted about her so she couldn't get out. And when she was well strapped, she changed, and she began to plead. Please don't kill me. Please don't kill me. She says the most pitiful cry I ever heard from the lips of a human being. He said the warden put the black handkerchief about her eyes, reached over and pushed the button, and burned her body up. He said, Preacher, I guess it'll be that way when men and women are cast into the lake of fire. They won't go willingly. They'll be cast into the lake of fire. That's the second death. My God. My soul. My friend, heed the warning. Look alive to your soul while your wits are about you. While you got a knee to kneel on and a voice to call with and a life to surrender. Hurry to the Lord Jesus. Hurry to the Lord Jesus. After listening to this sermon, I think the stories of Dixie and the lady on death row, but particularly Dixie, will stay with me forever. In a way, his life kind of paralleled that of the people of Borger. Every day he spent cursing God, but every night in order to sleep, he prayed that if God didn't kill him, he'd serve him. 
In the same way, the residents of Borger hated Barnard and cursed him too. But who did they call when they were at death's door? The preacher. Barnard's experiences for those 26 months could have made him cold and hardened, or they could have burned him out and made him run away from ministry. But instead, he became all the more fervent about preaching the gospel. And like I said earlier, you can really hear how his heart breaks for those people. His heart reflected the heart of God. I hope you've enjoyed the first season of Revive Radio and have learned as much as I have through these episodes. And if you're feeling downcast with the lack of classic sermons in your life, I'll give you a bit of a boost. Revive Thoughts just released Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and it is so, so, so good, like seriously incredible. But if you're feeling like you're not quite ready for that kind of sermon after Rolf Barnard, that's understandable. So they have a wide variety of you to choose from, so you can just go ahead and peruse away. Also, Martyrs and Missionaries will come out with a new episode this week on the life of David Brainerd. And if you're not listening already, I'm hurt. So anyway, thanks for listening to Revive Radio. I'm Elise.